Hey guys, welcome back to the Swish Waterlad podcast. Yes, Waterlad is proudly sponsored by Swish, which is a super cool platform which lets you, the fans, connect with some of your favourite sports stars. As a young Hurricane fan growing up, I had an obsession with Christian Cullen and a video shout-out from the GOAT would have been the greatest present ever. Unfortunately, back then I did have to settle for a poster, but thanks to Swish, the old posters can now be turned into a video message that will last a lifetime. To order, head over to heyswish.com and you can get 10% off by using the code WATERLAD. But the very best bit of it all is that at least 20% of every video goes to Kiwi Kids Charities. Such a good cause and it's definitely worth getting behind. And also Pure Sport CBD have been helping Waterlad listeners with any muscle or joint pain for well over a year now. It is the most tested and trusted CBD oil on the planet with pro athletes all around the world using it. It is the ideal natural alternative for any athlete who is smashing back more than one anti-inflammatory a week. And of course it does have zero THC in it. If you want to give it a try, you can use the code WATERLAD20 and get an extra 20% off your order. And I'll leave a link in the description so you can just click on that. And lastly, everyone's favourite lad, Tim Bateman, has been offering an awesome opportunity for anyone who's interested in their wellness. O Studio is New Zealand's largest wellness and recovery space and there is now an exciting opportunity for you to own your very own. Anyone who knows Tim Bateman will know that he's one of the most switched on guys you'll ever meet. So having him guide you through this whole process of setting up your own business is priceless within itself. Add to the fact that the wellness space is the second fastest growing industry in the world. This is an awesome opportunity for anyone who likes to run their own ship or is excited for something new. If you are interested, click on the link in the description to get in touch. And as always, I'm super grateful for all our sponsors who are helping bring this podcast to you but we will get to the main act because this one is a good one. Oh, what a lad. Well, today I have a legend of the game on the podcast who has had some career. He's almost done it all. He's played for North Harbour, the Blues, Otago and the Highlanders. He's also represented his country in both the seven-man game and for, of course, the All Blacks. He also spent some time over the UK where he became a Leicester legend. And going off what every single person I've spoken to has said, he is one of the greatest lads going around. It is the great Craig Newby. Welcome, mate. Oh, mate, what an introduction. And uh, apart from the technical difficulties, I'm not a lad in the, in the computer world, mate. We've struggled here for the last 10 minutes, but great to be on, eh? Great to be on. <laughs> mate, stoked to get through that little technical difficulty and um, get you on. I love hearing stories about the golden era of professional rugby, and um, no doubt you have plenty. Yeah, well, I was having a bit of a think because – couple of the boys at, at the club here um, over in Belfast, they, they listen to the podcast as well. We've got a couple of Kiwi guys, and or one Kiwi, one Aussie. and um, So, yeah, I was sort of thinking of some stories the other day, but I guess until you start getting into them, mate, you, it's hard to remember them all, and half the, half the time you're pissed anyway and you don't remember them anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. But one thing a lot of people did want to know going from the questions was what you're up to now. Like, it's been a while since you've been out of the game, so... Um, what have you been up to post-rugby? Yeah, it's been nearly 10 years since I retired. Um, bad knees, so knees blew out on me and just had to give up. And um, So I've been over in the UK um, after that and 
the last sort of nine, 12 months, I've been over in um, Belfast coaching at Ulster. So somehow landed at the uh, skills coach, working with Jared Payne, who's the defence coach. Everyone will know JP and, and a guy called Dan Soper, who's Charlie Hall's best mate from down in Alexandra. So real good crew of coaches here. So that's my last 12 months is just uh, trying to learn how to coach and try not to make mistakes and trying to add value. Yeah, what have you found the biggest difference from coaching to playing? Oh, probably the, the way you talk to people, like you, and the way you you, <laughs> you treat everyone. Like as a player, you just sort of ripped in and, and led from the front, and if something needed to be said, you'd say it. But as a coach, you've got to be a little bit more tactful and, and think about how that might come across and how it wants to come across to the players. So I found that yeah. probably in the last twelve months, really, really challenging and, and something I've really enjoyed. Um, initially, it was having an idea that I knew that could be done, but players, you know, couldn't do it or, or couldn't you couldn't coach it across to them. So I found that initially, but yeah, that's that's been a struggle. But I mean, I love it. I love the coaching. Um, I love being on the sideline. I do the water and run the tee on or hobble the tee on. And I just love being part of the footy. And we had a, we were in Toulouse on the weekend and absolutely 30,000 people in their stadium just going mad, mainly at the referee because he was, he, well, I thought he was brilliant, but they didn't think he was. And <laughs> I, I just love being part of footy and, you know, just sitting down at the end of it, win, lose, draw and have a beer and share the stories. And um, that's why I'm still in it. But yeah, doing it over here in Belfast. I, I live on my own here. I've got a little a nice place in East Belfast and yeah, enjoying that. Do you miss playing? Sounds like it. Oh, there's days I miss the atmosphere of playing, like the big games, you know, like I wish I was there to, to, to enjoy that, but um, I don't miss waking up, well, I do still wake up sore back and sore knees and my neck, and, but no, I don't miss it. Though last year, I was oh, a couple of years ago, I was home um, during COVID times, my mum was a bit crook, so I came home to help out the old man, basically cook him dinners because he's pretty hopeless and um, came home to support mum and dad and I ended up... My brother-in-law plays for Kahukura, who I did, he coaches them, and he said, oh, we're going to have to watch the Chiefs-Highlanders game, we're going to meet at the at the pub at nine in the morning, jump on the bus across to Hamilton, come for a few beers, like, yeah, awesome. So, sinking beers down at, in, in Rotorua in the pub, and um, get on the bus at half past nine, had six beers already, and feeling good, and we get over there, and we've stopped off at um, Hamilton Old Boys, maybe, or one of the clubs, and they're like, oh, we've just got a Golden Oldies game before the the Highlanders Chiefs game, so do you want to play? I was like, nah, fuck that. I'm not playing. My knees gone. I can't play. And then oh, I've got you some boots. I was like, oh, no, no, no. Anyway, four more beers, and I've had a dozen beers here, and <laughs> the guitar's out. And it's proper. So anyway, I go right. I'll go sixteenth man. Within the first minute, someone's injured. I end up playing the whole game, and oh, mate, absolutely loved it. So up until that point, I hadn't missed rugby at all, but. I just got a oh, skin full and just got the fever. It was golden old, was over 40s, and there was this one bloke who was going Terry Turbos, and me and my brother-in-law, Brad, we were like, oh, let's get him. So we smashed this one guy, and I got sucked into it and then ended up scoring a try, and oh, it was just so good, so good. And then I went to the went to the Chiefs game, and it was a beautiful way, a nice afternoon. It was a game where the Chiefs were up by a million at half time, and everyone was giving me a load of shit, and then the Hollanders dragged it back, and... I remember seeing Grant Fox and uh, did the classic, hey, Foxy, and he turned around and just, like, we all just blanked him and he didn't know who it was and he's looking at the crowd and just one of those days. But um, that's the only game I've had in 12 or 10 years. 
<laughs> Scored a try, smashed someone, mate. You're on fire. I love it. <laughs> mate, one bloke was about 70 and he came flying into this ruck and just caught my elbow. And he, well, I mean, he might have caught it right, whatever, but he come up with this massive cut. He must have needed 10 stitches and he was so, he was pretty old, so old. He had the gold shorts on and that. And, yeah, um, yeah. but he just loved it. He just he ran off, taped himself back up with some insulation tape through a cut and just loved it and just straight back into it. And, um, but I guess that's the like, that, like none of them, not, not that I, you know, I'm pretty modest, but none of them knew I was an ex or black or who, you know, whoever I was. It was just some blokes just having beers. And at every water break, the, the sheep drench gun would come out and you'd have shot support and, and at the at the aftermatch function, it was pretty nice. We had a big, massive feed, and um, I don't know what happened, but one of the guys, the, the air captain, found must have found out, and then the speech has just said, "Oh, awesome, you know, having all black in here, and you know, to play the game and have a few beers and stuff." So that was that was pretty cool. Um, just getting acknowledged um, for that. So was it your knees that ended your career, and what was that? How bad was it? Yeah, it was my knees in the end. Um, I was still playing really good footy for Leicester. We'd made. Um, We'd lost the final to Harlequins that year, and I, well, tragically, I didn't, I didn't play in the final. I had pretty bad knees, and I wasn't training a lot. And I, I played the semi-final against Saracens, and and I got man of the match. And then the the final got put on the bench. I was pretty bitter about it. So yeah, that was that was it really, and that was my last game. I kind of knew it was my last game, and um, I didn't, it didn't even get put on, and I was pretty filthy, and I, I didn't see the final like two minutes of the game. I just, well, you know, like after. I just went into the changing rooms and probably acted quite poorly and respective, you know, looking back, I probably should have dealt with that better. But I knew it was my last game. I just, in my heart, I knew I had I had off-season clean-outs planned or booked in, but I just knew it was my last game. And I, I remember going to the changing room and Julian White, lots of got him prop, he, um, he didn't get on either. And we just sat and then we had a beer and then fucking Murphy's Law, the drug testers come over and like uh, number 19 and number 20 whatever and you're drug testing and I told this guy to fuck off and he said oh is that a are you denying a, a test and I said I'm not denying a test mate I've just fucking one lost the final two not got on I'm sitting here having a beer with my mate just like and he's like well if you're going to refuse I'll put you down as a as a as a refusal and that's going to go as a two year ban and you know I ended up I took like two hours to take a person <laughs> Um, just to spite him, really. <laughs> so that was it, yeah. So just cartilage, really. I, I had a few tidy ups over my, over my time, and eventually they ran out of options. Um, and yeah, I'm in for a, a knee, but double knee replacement. I've actually got a, a surgery um, appointment tomorrow with a surgeon, and then hopefully getting them done this year, which should be good. Get a new pair of wheels. How good! You'll be back out there in no time. <laughs> But man, that's so disappointing to hear what fairy tale finish. Like a lot of guys always sort of dream about the perfect way to end their career, but um, obviously your one was not quite like that. Nah, but I, I, I don't have any regrets. And I, I remember Richard Cockerell was the coach, and he eventually got moved on from Leicester. And I rang him just to say thanks for his time, you know, and, and hard luck how they'd done it. Like the club didn't really go about it that well. And he just said, no, nah, thanks for your, you know, all your effort and, you know, your, the games you played for me were. You know, like he always gave your best, and that was quite a nice compliment. And then he just apologised for not putting me on in the final. He said, "You know, like I've, I've one of my regrets." So, yeah, it's one of those things, and uh, someone's got to win, and someone's got to lose. And, and on that day, it was it was Harlequin's day. And a lot of people talk about how hard um, those first couple of years are post retirement. How did you find that? Um, I don't know, really. Like you can sit around and and feel sorry for yourself, or or mope, or 
I don't know, find excuses, but not to get out of bed or to, I don't know, I was on all this money and now I'm not and whatever, but I was pretty lucky. I, I had um, pretty good investment sense. My, my parents were really good at advising me with my money, so I had a little bit of money tucked away and I invested in some property and done okay there. So financially I was okay, so I was lucky. I know some guys aren't in that same boat, but yeah, I just made a plan. I wanted to be a coach and I said, right, how, what do I need to do? And so I was coaching at schools and I ended up getting a National One gig with Cambridge and doing after dinner speaking and just working my ass off for, for an opportunity and eventually got to Japan, had a year in, at the Green Rockets uh, and then came back. And so I didn't give myself time to yeah. to dwell. I just made some goals and, and like, how can I how can I achieve those? Um, that was that was it really, I suppose. Um, didn't have time to, to sook about it. That's it. And how did you find coaching uh, the Green Rockets? Oh, the Rockets, mate. That I loved it um, for for lots of reasons. After I I decided, you know, it took me two or three months to decide that I wasn't going to change some of the stuff they were trying to do on and off the field, and just embrace it. And, and I started finding ways that I could influence the players and the play. And the, and I, you know, I, I just got there. I had some good. Good buggers there. A guy called Nick Ross, who's from Waikato, second row, and Neil Brew, old bruiser from back in the Hollanders days, was playing. And um, so we had a, a few boys, Sam Little Nine, an Aussie guy, and Scott Higginbotham. So I just really went through those guys. And we had, our captain um, spoke good English. So I kind of just cut the Japanese coaches out a wee bit and try to focus on what I could control. And I had some awesome nights out in Tokyo with some of the boys. And like we, you know, jump on the train and like just all you can drink and whatever it's real cheap and that and remember like going in to meet Orlando Sarkai and a few boys once and I, I left my my bag I got that pistol left my bag in the taxi and I was fucking I was nowhere eh? like I didn't know where I was and he ended up somehow he got on my phone and he found the last taxi and he rung this, the, the number and he spoke fluent Japanese and this guy within half an hour the guys dropped my bag back and it was yeah oh, I love this love the place good food good people um Footy was tough. We got into the relegation battle and we ended up beating Docomo, I think, to get through and we, we saved the club. But um, they're struggling a bit too now. Boris Stankovic, one of my good mates, is over there coaching there. Oh, yeah. And uh, he loves it as well. But they're struggling a bit. Yeah, they're definitely struggling. They haven't won a game for about uh, two or three years now, <laughs> maybe since you left. Nah, they, they won two because the other team got COVID. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And all the coaches are celebrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Claim it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Oh, mate. Well, anyway, um, we can't get through a Waterland episode without hearing the story from the start. So pretty keen to hear what life was like for you growing up. So give us the rundown. Yeah, life was pretty good. I um, started footy for Kahukura, my local club, when I was four, under fives. started playing when I was four and uh, we lived in the city then and I think when I was about eight or nine, moved out to the countryside. I remember just getting home from school and dad was like, oh, we're moving. Oh, yeah, we were going. Oh, we'd just jump in the truck and we drove out and, and end up on a farm um, just outside of Rotorua and probably the best thing for me. Like, I was a kid who had loads of energy and I wasn't that keen on school and got in trouble a bit. And so being out on the farm was really good. Um, when I was about 12 or 13, uh, me and a mate, Ian, we were out uh, shooting sparrows and pigeons and stuff with the air rifle and he he shot me in the leg so I spent a few weeks in hospital and had to get an operation a long story he reckons it wasn't loaded it was definitely loaded and um so that sort of shaped me a bit I went from a number eight to a, I came out of that and spent 
I don't know, six months rehab, and then I came out as a fly half, so that shaped my uh, kicking and passing ability. And um, Went to Rotorua Boys, used to catch the school bus, it would take me about an hour and a quarter, hour and a half to get into school just to get to Rotorua Boys, because that, that was where rugby and cricket was. Yeah. Um, Western Heights was my other option, but they didn't have cricket, and I was more of a, I was a real keen cricketer in those days, and I love my, love my footy, but um, cricket was my main passion, so went to Rotorua Boys. Um, drew the national final. 1997 or 8 or something like that with Richie McCaw's Otago boys Richie oh, McCaw yeah. and Filippo Levy and Jason yeah. Carwell and it was me and Tom Donnelly were the Rotary boys uh, sort of got through the landers so we drew 5 all no extra time because um, we are playing at Jade Stadium and Harbour Canterbury were playing before us after us in the TV times it was a bit it was shit really we drew that so, that, yeah, that, that was it really, just a typical sort of Kiwi kid upbringing, beach in the summer and footy and cricket. Um, parents were awesome. Had an old, older sister who was um, – we didn't get on at all. Like we were, we hated each other until um, till she left school and um, we become good mates, you know, like so we're still good mates. I spoke to her just before. Um, so that was it really. And then I, I didn't play much rep stuff. I played a little bit of Bay Secondary Schools – but not really. I was, I don't know, I was a skinny flanker who just went hard and loved it. And um, I played Bay in the 19s when I was still at school. My brother-in-law, or now brother-in-law, was playing for the Bay 19s and I came, went along to watch and a couple of guys didn't turn up so I just jumped on and did it <laughs> real good. And I remember going to play in Taupo against King Country and we had a had a court session. I didn't know what a court session was and I I went real hard from the start and <laughs> blew out and I remember just being sick all through like my bed and that. That was the first real big footy piss up, and I just remember, shit, I was like, I need to sort myself out. And then, I don't know if you remember, there was like the New Zealand Rugby Academy. Nah, I don't remember that. They had a three-year deal down in Palmy, and you did like four or five camps every year, and I, I scraped my way into that, because I'd made, I sort of inadvertently sort of made the New Zealand Sevens, Yeah. Um, which is quite an interesting story, but... I remember making the New Zealand Academy and that was the first time I'd really ever had any performance training or never been to the gym. Um, and you'd, we'd go down to Palmy for three or four days and there's got like, uh, who was in my group? Tony Woodcock, Mills Molina, Irene uh, Ie, Justin Wilson. Oh, I can't even remember now. It's a long time ago. Shannon Paku maybe. And we used to just go down and just train, like just get through the training and then go straight into the fits and just have pints and jugs and the fits down there, the pub, and because it was good uni town. And I remember one time we got we got there, and it was um, they were going for the world record of Jim Beam bottles in a night. And so we're like, oh, we're into this because Jim Beam went. I don't know, Jim Beam was a big thing when we were young. Like that, you just Jim Beam ice, scoop the ice out, throw it on the floor, throw it at throw it at someone, and then just chop your Jim Beam. So we we got involved in this world record attempt, and. Uh, I think it was like I remember it getting to ninety nine, and everyone was counting down that like when the hundredth bottle came off the wall, and we're all like they're lining it up, and we're just chopping it. Man, we're wrecked, and uh, we got home like six in the morning, and we had a session with um, with Tony Gilbert and Wayne Smith, who were in and around the All Black scene, and like we were just the terror, we couldn't catch a cold, couldn't listen to instructions. A couple of guys were in the corner sick. Some guys didn't turn up. <laughs> And it was just a debacle. And um, Brendan Ratcliffe, I think, was the guy who ran it. And he, I remember him just ripping into us, tearing into us. And we used to get three grand 
cash a year and you get all these trips and your kit and stuff and that was year one and then that was it they canned it so we didn't even do year <laughs> two and three after that um world record attempt but we we were on the board got over 100 bottles it wasn't just us obviously but 100 bottles of jim beam in a night world record <laughs> how many people were there oh it was rammed it was it was packed um it was packed but I just, I, the last thing I remember is it getting to 100. It could have gone more, but I don't know. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> yeah. We're meant to play games and everything. Like We were going to be a, a team to play games, but it just got the whole thing just fell apart yeah. after that. They were like, oh, you're not taking it seriously. And it's just kind of the era we're in. We're in between that kind of schoolboy, we uh, play first 15, go to a party, and professionalism was sort of just kicking off. So we kind of got caught in between that. And that's where I, you know, like what I enjoyed, you know, play hard, work hard, play hard kind of scenario. Mm, certainly sound like you did that. So you mentioned a little bit about the New Zealand Sevens and being on the fringe of that. How did that one come about from plenty under-19s, was it? Oh, nah, well, that under-19s was, I was just sliding, I was still at school. Um, but no, the... New Zealand Sevens used to do the trial at a 50-man camp or whatever in Rotorua. And I was at my leavers luncheon, first 15, or no, school leavers luncheon on a Friday. And Gordon Titchens had rung our headmaster, who was Chris Grinter, who was Jonah, Jonah's coach at Wesley. Oh, yeah. Anyway, he rung and said, look, I need three or four boys to, you, you know, got three or four boys to come down, fill in some numbers. We're going to have like a, a tournament. We need like a certain amount of players. So... He come over to me and a few others and said, hey, boys, you want to go down Monday? Is blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I'll be there. What time? And he's like, 8 o'clock or whatever. On the Monday, I think I was the only one who turned up out of the, the four boys that got invited. And, mate, it was first first thing was beep test. And I was you know, reasonably fit, young fella, but beep test, and I got like a 12 or something like that. Did okay. Half an hour after the beep test finished was three 1K runs, <laughs> so 15 minutes in between runs. So I've run them and I'm like struggling. Then we did sh- like shuttles and then it was two on ones for about an hour. I was the worst first day of my life. And it was, I was living out of town, but they're like, oh, look, we need you to stay at the hotel because you've got four, three days. Of I'm like, fuck, I can't get through three days of this. And they didn't have any spare room. So I had to sleep on, um, sleep on the floor in Eric Rush's room. They got me this like fucking blow up mattress. A pillow and like a sheet, and I just had to lie on this thing for three nights. But and then day two and three, I think was games, and it was like I was in the blue team or whatever, and just played. And it was at the Rotor International Stadium, and I actually really enjoyed that side of thing, like playing against adults and you know guys like Dallas Seymour and Owen Scrimmager and you know some some real greats from the from the era. And I'd imagine guys like Bruce Rayanahana and Sam Nanoa and Damon Corona and that, you know that kind of that kind of guy who were playing on the circuit and then on the Thursday or whatever it was they're like right wrap it all up well done everybody we're going to name the team and then everyone else can shoot home whatever and I just left I was like oh, sweet I just left I didn't even hear the team announcement and then got phone, like got home I could hardly walk I was, I was almost crying mum picked me up like I was didn't couldn't drive oh, I, I don't know if I could drive but I, I was so sore I couldn't drive mum picked me up and I was almost crying I'm like I couldn't move and so she took me to like a doctor and she's like, oh, something's wrong with him. He's, and I was like, so anyway, I ended up going to a massage therapist. I never had a massage before in my life. And this guy's like, couldn't even touch me without me squirming. Anyway, then get a phone call and it's the, the manager of the team saying, look, Craig's meant to be in camp. Um, he's been selected for the New Zealand Sevens. 
Um, we're like, where is he? He's just shot through. And she's like, oh, he didn't say anything about that. And uh, as it turned out, I'd done okay on these four days and made the squad. So I had to go back and I was like, I was in so much, I was in bits. So I um, I went back and went into camp and, yeah, that was my New Zealand set. Just took an opportunity, just turned up, fronted. Crazy, mate. That is unreal. Yeah, mate. A young kid playing with all the legends. Oh, mate, it was so good. It was so good. Um, I had two years or two years on the circuit, and I didn't play many in the first year. I think I played Japan and, and maybe Fiji. Well, Fiji was my definitely my first tournament. Um, and then the second year, I played every every tournament in that circuit, and we won that won that circuit. Oh, mate, real good story. That might have been that first World Series thing. The last one was in Paris, and we flew to LA on the way for a stopover, and then we met this guy. I can't remember his name. Um, but he was this rich Kiwi guy, and he said, "Look, he took us out for lunch. And he said, if you win the the series on your way back, I'll take you out on like on the piss, and you know, I'll shout at you all this." And we're like, "Yeah, sweet." And we got over there. We had to we had to make the final, and Fiji had to not make the final. And Samoa yeah. beat them in the semi final, and we got through, and we ended up we beat Samoa, and we won the tournament, and we went <clears throat> we went back through LA, and we stopped in LA for four days. It was me and Chris Masoi, Rodney Sualo, Eric Rush. Jared Going, uh, Justin Wilson would definitely would have been there. Damien Crona, Carl Tanana. I, you know, I'm picking names out my ass here, but this guy takes us out onto his yacht, and we go out to Catalina Island, and we're we're on like I've, I've never touched champagne. I didn't even know what champagne was. We're drinking champagne, fizzing it up over each other. There was like prostitutes on the boat. There was like a jacuzzi, and there was a jet ski. I mean, it was ridiculous. There's a chef, and we're just pissing it up, and we're we're on this jet ski, and we're doing bombs and swimming around, and like just playing up for the whole day. And he eventually he arrives later on. He he like jet boats in, and he's like, "Get out of the water!" I'm like, "Fuck, what do you mean?" And he's like, "What are you doing in the water?" I'm like, "Well, don't know." Like, we found it quite strange. There was so many boats all parked out there. It was a beautiful thirty degrees, crystal clear water, and there was no one in the water the whole day. I'm like, "Fuck, this is weird." Maybe they don't like. The- doing bombs over here or whatever. <laughs> but it was shark breeding, great white shark breeding season. Oh, and there's sharks warning everywhere. They come up the coast of California and they breed there. And no one had told us. And we're in the water all day. We could have easily – we didn't see a shark, but, mate, it was crazy. So that was – yeah, Sevens was awesome, mate. I absolutely loved it. It was real work your ass off and then have a party. Mm. Um Normally, the sort of second weekend of you'd go away and you'd go like, I don't know, Singapore, then Hong Kong, or, you know, I think it was Brisbane, then Wellington, whatever. The second weekend was just a massive party. And I, I made some awesome mates through through that, guys like Julian Huxley in, all, in, in Australia, a guy called Freddie Asselin from Canada. We became real good mates and we used to just just wait for that last, after that last tournament and just uh, rip into it. It was awesome. I loved mm. it. I loved my sevens. Yeah, because Titch was always pretty um, serious and quite strict with all of that sort of professionalism side of things leading up to the first, obviously, till you finish playing your tournaments, eh? And then um, it's a bit of a let your hair down moment when you're having those big parties. But I didn't know they were that extravagant on the boat with jet skis and champagne and prozies, Jesus. <laughs> oh, mate, that was, um, I wouldn't say the norm, but <laughs> the, the, parties were, the parties were bloody good, eh? But... Titch was good, you know, like he was, like you say, he was, he wanted a level of fitness that was, you know, exceeding what your body was capable of and yeah. you had to come into camp 
getting a 13 on a beep test or you you wouldn't even get to day two he'd send you home so um i think that's where i I learned to organize self-organize and just work really hard and i used to you know summer at the mount at mount monganui and i'd get up every morning regardless if i had bears or not and i'd run around the mount and i'd try and beat my my time and then i'd go for a swim and then i'd come home have breakfast and in the evening do the same thing just but go the other way and It was not a mat. It was like fourteen minutes. I think was my record. But I just you just come in fit, and if you weren't, then you wouldn't play. And Titch was awesome like that. And but he was really good on like the social side of things. You know, we'd always do excursions and we'd be out and about. And I remember going to the Commonwealth Games, and we went straight into the in Manchester, and we went into the village. Um, and the sevens was the last two days of the whole thing, and we went there quite early. And um, First day, we're just walking around, like, buzzing out. Everyone had, like, two haircuts and getting all the free condoms and eating McDonald's, and he was, like, doing his nut because he was so, like, want us to eat properly and sleep, and we're, like, up to 11 at these parties and discos and people getting winning gold medals, and we're, like, just... So the straw broke when, when one of the Kiwi um, Lawn Bowls guys, he got a bit souped up. He'd been kicked. He'd been like kicked out of his competition before the opening ceremony, and he'd got pissed up for two or three days, and he wasn't flying back. And he, he ended up touching up some like athlete, and there was a complaint, and so he got sent home. And then Titch was like, "That was the straw. Like, there's too much distraction." So he pulled us out of the village, and we went and stayed in a hotel out of town oh, really? until the tournament, oh, really? which I think was the best thing for us because we were just we're all young fellas, eh? And, at the end of the day, so many distractions and like some of these athletes, like men and women just walking past and you're like, fuck, like they were, you know, they trained four years for it. We trained four weeks, you know, and so we moved out and then we didn't even make, so we played the final against Fiji and we won the gold mm. and um, we went back on the bus to get changed and that we met some, the Kenyan, like some Kenyan team, not rugby, but just the Kenyans and we spent an hour on this bus doing huckers and, and <laughs> Two ten of my Naui, and they were doing like Kenyan songs, and we didn't even make the the closing ceremony. We just went straight to this party with the Kenyans, and ended up with the New Zealand netball girls, the Kenyans, and the Kiwi rugby guys, and we just had the best night ever. It was so good, so good. Right. Bruce Ray Hunter didn't take off his gold medal for like three days. <laughs> Mate, that is good times. And that game, you guys were playing against a stacked um, Fiji side too in that final, eh? Yeah, oh, they're always stacked, eh, in sevens, you know, like, they're just a factory of, of sevens. But, yeah, they had, like, Wasali Serevi, Dallasal, um, those two spring to mind, I, I can't quite remember. But um, one of them got sent off, like, in the first half. And it was really weird. Like, they, you know, we wanted to win fair and square. And at the time when there was, like, it was a late hit on something, Brad Fleming got late hit, I think. And Rushy must have been captain. And he went to the referee and said, don't send him off, like, put him in the bin two minutes or whatever and he said just do not send him off and the ref was like no it was bad send him off and it was quite quite sad really it sort of killed it a bit but then they they were winning at the time by a score or whatever and then they got a penalty shortly after and they took a shot at goal Serevi took a shot at goal and went up like eight points he's like I thought I think he must have thought if we can get two scores ahead and just hold on then it might have been enough but we yeah we ended up winning that was some mate that was cool mate unreal that was cool unreal then, times and then I guess 15s, I had to try and well, I wanted to concentrate on 15s because I always wanted to be an All Black. So was this when you were playing You were playing for North Harbour at the time as well, were you? Yeah. Yeah, so I'd moved up from Rotorua to Auckland to go do a university course. North Harbour had 
paid for my university fees, which was probably the biggest waste of money that I ever spent because um, I only did a year and I felt I didn't, it wasn't ready for me and I was traveling. And in those days, like unis, well, particularly the one I was at, they didn't really understand the student athlete and they weren't very compromising on deadlines and exams and stuff. And, and I'm pretty stubborn and I wouldn't, you know, if they said no, I would, I'd always question. I, I'm not, I wasn't really good at taking no for answers and when it was a stupid reason yeah. so I was always like going back and eventually I just got sick of trying to get extensions and getting fails and stuff and work my ass off and I'm away and uh, but yeah I went up to North Harbour um, played one game of Colts and then played in the B team and then did a season in the B's we'd always play before the A team and uh, they had a Harbour master with a massive big head plastic head thing and we'd get pissed up and at half time um, you'd take turns running out onto the field. You'd do a lap or a length across the field and stuff, and you'd take turns, and you'd see you could do the stupidest things. And I remember John Buchanan, we are at Counties, and uh, he ran across, just put the head on naked, ran across the field and back. Um, the Harbour Master was awesome. That was that was good times. And then I played, yeah, played Harbour and then Blues all within sort of 12 months. All happened really quickly. And what was it like going into the Blues environment? Oh, like, mate, I was playing – like not playing, training with guys I'd watch like Craig Dowd and Carlos Spencer, um, Glenn Taylor and Robin Brooke. Like these guys were playing for the All Blacks and I was watching, I was now Craig Innes. Mate, unreal. And then there was guys like me, Kevin Mialamu, Woodcock maybe my second year, uh, Dougie Howlett, you know, a real young crop of lads coming through. So it was, it was pretty cool. My first trip, we went to up in Queensland somewhere, uh, Malulabar, that's right, for pre-season. We did a pre-season over there. John Kerwin's our coach, and he loved surfing, so I reckon we went up there just to surf. <laughs> and um, we went up there, and, and we did training. I don't even know if we played. We might have played the, the Queensland up there in a pre-season game, but we had a court session, and all the young guys had to stand up, and it was it was real weird. It, was, like, it wasn't just beer. It was like spirits and stuff like Carlos and that. We weren't right into drink, making guys drink spirits and that, and... I remember we were getting real, real hammered. Me and Real Tupoki and Martel Parkinson, all at the, and Troy Flavel and Ron Cribble, all the Harbour, all the Harbour lads, they eh, were pretty, pretty tight. And uh, we got a bit pissed. And then I came back, me and Mutz came back, and um, we decided to get the fire extinguishers out and have like a bit of a fire extinguisher squirt war thing. But we, as soon as we pulled the trigger, we're like, yeah, this is cool, bit of foam. And then it just kept coming, and we couldn't put the rings, wouldn't come back. It was like one of those ones you just, go and it must just empty and these two fire extinguishers emptied and then the sprinklers start going off and we're like fuck and it's up to our ankles so we just drop these things run back to our room jump in and hopefully it just goes away we pass out wake up and there's like police fire engines firemen everything and there's just footprints from where these things were to our room and we're like trying to deny it and we're like mate it's literally footprints to your room it's you guys were like no nah, it's not us not us anyway they had like eight fire engines turned up the whole everyone got evacuated like all the alarms are going off we had to pay i think it was about three thousand dollar fine between years uh each each oh shit yeah week one boys chipped in though apparently i like all the boys chipped in i remember fitzy was the manager and he was like he was like nah i'm making you pay it all you know fuck you you know make make you learn a lesson and and we're like, oh yeah, whatever. And um, I think I think contracts in those days were like sixty grand. Yeah. 
um, for a first year. So it was like, well, good money, but your first month or first week, and there's like your month wage is gone. <laughs> and uh, but all the all the old boys pitched in. I think they all chucked in. We end up paying a couple of grand each, or whatever. But mate, worth it, worth it for the <laughs> fire extinguisher fight. <laughs> oh mate, yeah, yeah. But my first year at Blues was good. I played. A, I only played like five or six games that year, and we we actually we got like Blues were going through a transition with, I guess those older guys sort of pushing through, and all the younger guys coming through, and we didn't do that well. We weren't that consistent, but. I absolutely loved it. Um, and then this, my second year, really, for North Harbour, I played really well. And Peter Sloan was the Blues coach and by then. And he had said, look, I'm going to protect you. They used to be able to protect guys within your region. Oh, no, I'm not going to protect you. So then Laurie Maines put, picked me up in the draft. And he ring, Laurie Maines rings me and says, look, I want to put you in the draft, but uh, not too keen on your haircut. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah what, what do you mean? And he's like, look. Don't know what you guys do up there in the North Island, but in the South Islands we have short haircuts. So uh, if you want to come to the Highlanders, uh, we'd love to have you, but you need to get a haircut because I, I had dreadlocks. Oh, you had the dreadlocks, sure. Like the Rotor throwback dreadlock that I had for three or four years, and mate, pretty successful haircut. Like, did pretty well, and I was like, oh, far out. So. It was my not my identity, but it was sort of part of like I played the role of you know the hard guy, the yeah, the, the guy that just went hard, you know. And it, anyway, so I went down to the Highlanders and um, Laurie Means. I had a haircut. I just walked into a barber and said, "Mate, cut them off." And they're like, "You're kidding?" I was like, "Nah, cut them off." Do you want to keep them? No, I don't want to keep them. Fucking keep you keep them. <laughs> <laughs> my blonde tips had the blonde tips, and oh, it's oh. brutal. I can't believe a coach made you cut them. Well, he didn't, mate. He suggested, I think. Yeah. He think he suggested, if you want to play for the Highlanders and you get a haircut, I was like, I'll get a haircut. <laughs> and I went down to the Highlanders, mate, and fell in love with the with the whole thing. Like, day one, Bell McEwen Golf Course. I was in my partners with Jeff Wilson, uh, me and Willie Walker, Jeff Wilson, and Simon Mailing, I think, was our, was our group of four on a golf course. Mm-hmm. And it was a few beers, and we're going around. And then go up to the golf club afterwards, Right, can these guys stand up? Uh, Craig Newby, uh, Willie Walker, Billy Fulton, Sam Harding, definitely Sam Harding, stand up and like, oh shit, what's going on? And we're like, realise we're all first years and we get a jug. Jug comes, like eight jugs come out. There's eight of us. Eight jugs come out. Right, this is how it works in the in the Highlanders. You do your jug in one. If you take your lips off, it counts as a fail. It's all like, oh shit, right. So I'm up second or third and do my jug. And uh, that counts as one, like every one you do in a row is, is you count. And that's when day one starts. And if you see how many you can get through without someone failing. That's right. And uh, we get through those eight, all eight, like real good start to the season, all those eight. And we're like, this is awesome. Like, if I'm, this is the Highlanders. Like, I want to be Highlander forever. <laughs> and then Sam Harding was turned 21 and a yard glass came out. And they're like, right, take your shirt off, yard glass. And he does a yard glass and he chews through it and he vomits everywhere and he goes through it. And then then next thing we're at Paul Miller's house with kegs and my party. And then uh, went into town. Next morning we had um, training and we had to do 3150s. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, oh, mate, it was brutal. Guys were being sick and that. But got through them. But I remember got one of Tony Buller and Joe McDonnell – and a couple of the props, mate, were just dying. I felt bad for them. I was only, I was a whippet, you know, and like there and back was 150 and you'd do 30. 
guys were lapping guys and oh, it was brutal but I just remember like this is where I want to be like, I love this place you know if you're going to last night a few beers meet everyone I'm playing with guys like Tony Brown and Jeff Olsen and mm. Byron Keller and you know, like unreal and then they stick together off, off the field and then on the field they work their asses off and um, that was my introduction to the Highlanders and I think it only got better <laughs> after that <laughs> <laughs> we had a keg every game of that year we had a keg in the change room after you come off the field have a keg and um it wasn't like you know it was what's that two or three beers each or whatever it was between the whole yeah. group and squad but it was such a like spates was such a thing you know like i, I always drank line red or, or whatever it was cheap really rynek or, or tui or whatever but anything mate to get it the purple guanas um <laughs> But Spates was obviously such a passionate thing about the South and they were a big sponsor and, and you learned to not drink anything other than Spates and it was kind of like a connection thing. We'd go to South Africa and everyone would put six or 12 beers, cans of beer in their suitcase so that when we had games or, or there was time, there was, there was Spates in the change room and it was such a real connection to the people and to the area and so I, I really... I really love that. Like it was, it just felt like win, lose, or draw. You come in, have your beer, sit down, and, and, and have a yarn and talk to, talk about stuff. And I find that now, like we're pretty good here at Ulster. Like after a game, the boys will sit down and have a, a can of Coke or a, or whatever a Pepsi or whatever or a Heineken and and just digest. But some other clubs I know don't. They just so quick get in the showers, undies on, and, and move on. So I, I really enjoyed that, and I try and encourage that as a coach now. That kind of time after just a debrief, just relax. You've just put yourself through war. And, yeah, um, I think I learned that through the Highlanders. Yeah, mate. It's some of the best moments in your career, eh? Those moments after a game in the sheds, and um, like you say, it is sad that it doesn't happen as much as it used to. But there is a balancing act, isn't there? You, you probably don't want to be. I'm doing 20 jug scales after every game either. Nah, it's such a, it's obviously moved on and I I, I know that, you know, like it's, it's unrealistic really, but, you know, we pick and choose now, you know, you, yeah. you might go, right, we have a Friday, Sunday, you know, games and you pick and choose and um, and the boys, you know, they do spend a lot more time with, you know, their families and friends outside of rugby, you know, they'll, they'll get together and they'll spend that time and so it has changed. And by all accounts, everyone's told me that you run potentially the best cordy in world rugby um, you must have been in charge of a few good ones down there oh no that's a that's a lie uh carl hoft he runs a cordy like he's he runs a cordy i probably learned everything off him i remember just i remember writing notes you know, he'd have a cordy and he'd like speed round like all speed round right there down he's so good um front row was a anton mate anton oliver carl hoft Carl Heyman, Case Muse, might have been. It might have been. They were my first year with props were on committee. Second year was Simon Mailing, John Blakey. You know, second row. So it used to go through. But your quarters, quarters were were a good part of probably the end of the season, really. Um, or if you were in South Africa and you needed just to tighten up, just a good way of um, blowing the cobwebs off and air, you know clearing the air a little bit and telling a few stories and in a real safe environment. But yeah, we. I remember listening to your podcast on with Whopper, and um, he was kind of touching on that cordy we had at my house. Yeah, um, mate, that was a that was a real good, real good one. Uh, that was my last one for the region. I suppose, I don't even know. Yeah, it must have been Highlanders. And the reason that came around is we had our, our last game was on a Sunday one year, and so the cordy was the Monday. So we flew back from 
don't know where we flew back from, and we got back on this on the Monday morning. And um, tradition is you get an hour from the airport. You got to be at Carisbrook in an hour, and if you're late, it's a seven every minute, and every seven minutes is a jug. So you didn't want it. No one's late. Never really late. And um, so we get there, and it just gets loose quick. And um, just a regulation one. I think it started with like a hermit half does. You had to go out into the stadium and get your half does, not out back in until you've done your half does, no talking, and you're just dotted around. And then you go in and started there. And then I, I remember it finished. Um, Whopper and Clark Dermody got the empty keg and started smashing up this blue table that was in the middle that used to hold all the liniment and the sprigs and the, you know, the whatever, water or whatever. And they started smashing that up, which – in hindsight, it was probably a bad thing to do because it was like a it had been passed down from generations of Otago rugby teams. That was the oldest thing in the chain room in Carriswick was this blue table. And they smashed it up and then they <clears throat> started smashing the lights and it just got out of control. So we, the final straw on that day was me and Adam Thompson got on the sand spreader and we drove down to the dairy to get some more beers and food. And we're driving down like pissed, middle of the road on the sand spreader that's for, the, for Carisbrook. And the cops pull us over. They're like, what are you up to, lads? And we're like, oh, we're just getting some food. And they're like, I suggest you you drive back to where you came from. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And we're off our tits. Anyway, so we then got banned from court sessions at Carisbrook. Oh, true. They're like, no more. So there's work. Like, there's the Otago like general staff, you know, like the office staff and, and CEO and that. They're like literally next door to where we were. And we guys are naked and... Tony Brown had donated a um, a scooter. He had this little red scooter that we used to drive around, and you'd hold that big um, big Highlander or Otago flag and do a, a naked lap as fast as you get timed. And the low, there's five guys did it, and the, this lowest one had to do a jug. It was pretty like basic rules. You just had to get around the four posts, four corners without falling off or whatever. And, and uh, got, this is on a Monday, so they're all at work, and we then get band they're like look there's no more cordies so we eventually our last highlanders one were like oh fuck it we'll just have a court up at my place so i hired a marquee and put it out in the front paddock i had like eight acres i had this little i built this house and at eight acres and we built this put this marquee up and everyone parked in the other paddock and had this cordie and as Whopper said there's a, a car in the pond at one stage there was guys on my quad bike i think he said lawnmower but it was my quad bike naked doing na- naked rides and um, Adam Thompson's car got like he came back to get it the next morning. All his tires had been taken off and they were on blocks. It was classic, like once warriors looking stuff. It was it was awesome. That was the last one, but I don't know if I ran that one or not. I think I might have just been too worried that they were going to get into the shed and like get the chainsaw and cut trees down. And guys were fair away, mate. You're a brave man hosting one, gee, especially back in those days. But it was either that or don't have one, yeah. And it was worth the risk. For the cause, mate. Yeah. <laughs> shit. Yeah. Shit, that sounds like good times. Oh, good times to be a Highlander back in the days. But one thing I do want to talk about is your All Black career. Um, you did play three tests for the All yep. Blacks. Well, how did you find out, firstly? Um, oh, real real funny. Eh? Like, So we went to the, the trials. They started the trials back up. Oh, I had yeah. missed those for a few years and – this is 2004, must have been, you know, after Super Rugby 2004, had a trial. Um, I was in the possibles. Um, yeah. So you look around, you're like, oh, yeah, we're not making it. <laughs> and uh, 
So we played and mate, we almost tipped them up. Like they were they were stacked with all the the, the incumbents and we almost tipped them up and um, we played. I thought I personally played really well, but I was you know up against guys like Richie and um, Marty Holler. You know there was some pretty good sevens around. Uh, Josh Blackie maybe um, didn't make the original side, so I flew off to Fiji on holiday. And um, I, I went home for the weekend before I flew away on holiday, and I'd, I was cutting some wood up in the shed. I don't even know what I was doing, building a dog box, I think, and I cut my top of my thumb off on a on a table saw. And I remember mum took me to A&E and they stitched me all up and went to Fiji on a Monday and I'm on the bears. I was over with my partner at the time, but friends and stuff, and we are just having a real good time in Fiji. And I got a phone call, I don't know, maybe middle of week one or something, and it was Darren Shand saying, oh, Greg, uh, Richie's been injured or something. Can you, you know, we'd like you to come into the All Blacks. Can you be here this afternoon? And I said, "Oh, look, I'm actually in Rotorua, just uh, you know, bit of R and R. So can I come in tomorrow?" And he's like, "Yeah, sweet. See you at nine o'clock, whatever." And I so I had to catch a flight back, and I had this bung like my thumb. I couldn't swim. I was like swimming around like this with a plastic bag on and that, and I couldn't bend it, and it was pretty rooted. So I remember our physio from Harbour, Dave Beatty, his wife was a hand specialist. Um, so she, I, I got out of the airport, went around to her place, and she made me this. Um, like plastic molding cast, okay. so to put my thumb sort of like in a position that it wouldn't split the stitches and that. Turn up to training, get a load of kit, go straight to the training, and that might have been Tuesday or something. And then we played England on the Saturday, True. second test at Eden Park. And you're, like, you're on the bench, sweet, into it. Didn't know anything, didn't know the calls, didn't really. <laughs> I don't know. I felt like I wasn't really meant to be there. Yeah. And I was, I was sitting there, like, oh, I'm not going to get on. And then Marty Holler got injured or blood bin or something and I went on and uh played it was pretty it just happened so quick yeah um I don't even know how maybe 20 minutes and then game was over and we'd won and it just happened so quick and and I hadn't prepared for it because I knew I'd I'd been so disappointed about not making it and you know I thought I'd had a really good shot and and then after the game got my tie from Tana he was captain and Graham Henry's like well done son you know, did really well out there. Thanks very much. Richie's going to be right for next week. So uh, all the best, mate. Shook my hand and all the best. And I was like, oh, fuck, awesome. Choice. So then I went out and spent all my match fee on my mates. I had like a dozen mates there and spent all my be- all my money on, on them and had an awesome night out. And then the next day, get a phone call, oh, Richie's not quite right. Can you come in on uh, – can you come in? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had to – like try and make up some excuse because I was hung over and went back in and end up sort of staying in and out for that whole year. Did it always feel like a real temporary thing being involved then? I think um, I think that initial bit, like the, if it was England and then they re-selected for the Tri-Nations. Oh, yeah. And once I, I got re-selected properly for the Tri-Nations, so that first initial bit was like real cover and I was like just living day by day and just trying to enjoy it for what it was. And then... Uh, you know, trying to put my best foot forward, I suppose, and and then once I got named in the Tri Nations, that was like fuck, awesome. You know, like I was, I sort of personally felt like I belong there, but I, I never really did. I, I always felt, I always felt I didn't quite fit, or I didn't quite get the love. You know, they talk about the good people and all that, and I, I, I kind of felt I was on the out of outer of that, and I didn't really get the benefit of that whole change of mindset. Yeah. 
So that was my first year. And then I didn't play 2005, so the Lions year. I didn't get selected. I was playing really. I was, thought I was playing really good footy and didn't get selected. I was pretty despondent. Played for Otago against the Lions, which was pretty magic. And um, captained, captained Otago against the Lions, um, which was my first game for Otago. So I just transferred from North Harbour and I was sick of moving up and down. So I, I transferred and... and um, Played good footy and didn't make the All Blacks that year. Played for the Junior All Blacks, I think it was 2005, and then didn't play the Lions. Thought, you know, kind of over. And then 2006, I must have gone okay again and got, and got, got in, which was probably more frustrating because I, I think I I was training really well. I knew what was going on. I was really confident in that environment. And I was on the bench for, I think, eight games. Didn't get a start, but on the bench for eight games and only got on three times. All, you know, only had three tests and... I felt that was really like heartbreaking, you know, like you worked so hard and felt like I had loads to offer and and didn't get that opportunity. Um, and then my last, I knew it was my last test, was against Argentina and we, I was on the bench, we, me, Flavs, Jimmy Cowan, Luke, Ma- Luke McAllister. It's funny, I can't remember these names like yesterday, but it's come back <laughs> flooding to you. Eh? And um, boys were getting toweled up by the Argies, like Scott Hamilton's first test, he scored a try and... And I said, it was like quite close. I think we were winning by a couple of points. And I was like, we're amping to get on. All the bench were like amping, let's go on. And we can try and lift the tempo or whatever we can do. And we didn't get on. And I remember just going, oh, that's that's me done. That's my last test, I reckon. So I um, I went back to the change room, spat the dummy again, threw my jersey in the bin and just got changed and just jumped on the team bus. And I remember Wayne Smith saying, hey, what's wrong with you, Nibs? I was like, oh, mate, just let you know, I'm pretty disappointed not to get on again, you know, like. I feel like I could have really added value today. And he's like, oh, yeah, mate, you just got to be patient or something, which was good. He was an awesome, awesome man. Eh? Like, he wasn't malicious about it at all. He was just, like, pretty philosophical and, like, mate, just be patient, keep working or whatever. Um, and then Anton Oliver gave me – he picked my jersey out of, my, out of the bin and said to me um, – this was the next day – and he said, you you might want this. And he gave it back to me. That was it. That was my last one. And then the next year, still playing good footy, didn't even make the junior All Blacks. So I was like, ah, oh, this is – Nah, it's not for me. I'm going to go and do something different. And that's when I got the opportunity to come over to Leicester. Wow. Well, I looked for the opportunity and took it. Crazy. And then how did you find the uh, English Premiership? Mate, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, my last game for oh, – a good story. My, Whopper loves the story. My last game for the Hunters in Africa was against the Cheetahs in Bloemfontein. And uh, we had a real good win, 30-odd to – late 20s like awesome game um two battler teams you know like real battlers play good footy just ripping and then remember glenn moore he was coaching he said hey boys awesome win um we're gonna stay off the bears um we've got a big game next week against the blues at home traditionally teams you know that travel don't really do well in their first game back and we need to win it and blah blah, blah. And, I, and i was sitting there and i'm captain i'm sitting there like oh fuck Great speech, Growler. But uh, hey, boys, yeah, last thing for me is uh, just going to let you know I've um, I've signed a contract in Leicester. I'll be going on a two-year deal at the end of the season. So this is my last um, time I'll be in South Africa as a group. Um, I've booked a lim- uh, booked the van for 8 o'clock. Anyone wants to be there, we're going to, I don't know, whatever pub it's called, that Cuban yeah. had organised. <laughs> and you see his face going, just disappointed in me. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 quiet, quiet. At eight o'clock, 
759, there was 26 out of the 28 boys in a 12-seater van, like rammed. The only two that went there was Chris King and Paul Williams, and everyone just went in and just went mental, like best night ever. We, like Same as that Elliot Dixon story, like couldn't get people out, including me, like we're just going real hard. And then um, it got to like five o'clock, and the only way we got out is because me, Whopper, Tom Donnelly, and Clint Newlands were going hunting the next morning, yeah. and we had to be in the van at six. It was a couple of hours away. So we got back at like half past five, still steaming, jumped in this van, wearing shorts and T-shirt, thinking South Africa, it's going to be boiling. Get out to the middle of nowhere, and it's raining, freezing cold. And we're like, oh. So we sat in this hut drinking whiskey to keep warm. We got so wet, we just had to pull in. And then Clint Newland shot this massive eland or something, and we chased it around for about two hours because it, it hadn't hit it properly. And me and Whopper, the guy, for some reason, decided that me and Whopper could drive his Hilux. So I'm driving the Hilux. Whopper's in the front seat, box of beers. And we're driving around following the front ute, which Sass and Critter were on, trying to get this eland. And we're driving around drinking beers. Off-road, so obviously not drink driving, because I don't condone that. And then all of a sudden, we must have, I don't know, fallen asleep or looking at something. And we just, bang! smash straight into the back of the other ute right, and the guys are falling off there's like this whole tailgate's caved in we had these bull bars and the whole tailgate and we're like fuck whatever there we get out and the, it's just like nose to tail and the guy's like what happened we're like oh the brakes something's wrong with the brakes so you better check the brakes and so the guy's like mate you guys are like you can't drive so he got out and and that was it and then we drove back that was my last thing and then um yeah, flew. I played the rest of the season. Flew over in uh, October, I think it was. And uh, mate, I loved the Premiership. It was a real grind. Like Thirty games in a row. You'd know, mate. Like it's. But I, I loved it. Like we were a really good side, and we we're in Europe competitions, which was really different for New Zealanders. You know, playing home and away, and oh, so good, mate. And the stadiums are unbelievable. And I really enjoyed the, the rugby that we played. Like it was really, like my defensive stuff. I could just make 30 tackles a game and I was really valued. Like all those core things, like you catch pass that Kiwis take for granted, like they were really valued at Leicester and I became a real like leader in lots of different areas and and I was just there for that. Like obviously the money was really good and, and, the, and the lifestyle changed and I just wanted to play good footy and, and I ended up playing better rugby just because the fact I was playing free and I started, I don't know, I met just some really good different people. Like the English guys are you know, like they love a beer and they love like working really hard and it just sort of clicked for three or four years and um, we won a, won a few things and made a few good mates, you know, real good mates. Yeah. One game I do want to touch on is the famous, infamous uh, final against Cardiff where you step up to the 22, slot your kick. Mate, what was your heart rate like um, lining that one up? Oh, yeah, so context was it was a semi-final and we were, mate, we were pumping them in normal time and they scored two converted tries, Ben Blair from the sideline, Xavier Rush was playing for them, Ben Blair, two conversions from sideline, draw it up, extra time, um, draw it extra time and went went to penalty shootout and it was from in front and I was always, I always backed myself with goal kicking, like I used to always kick after training, I had some real good guys I kicked with, with through my career, Frona Bodica when I started and Willie Walker, then Nick Evans and Tony Brown. And then when I got over to Leicester, it was Toby Flood and Derek Hugard. And I used to just 
competition with them all the time and so I kind of I wanted to be in the top five I was like look I'm better than some of these other guys so can I be like three and Paul Burke was our thing coach he was like nah we'll save you for the back you know I was like mate I'm, Aaron Major's back was wrecked he was like number six yeah. Scott Hamilton wore Gilbert boots he, he was number five like, I mean, how can a guy wearing Gilbert boots be higher than me and John, Johnny Murphy who was like an awesome bloke but he um, he was real emotional and I was like, he's number four. He's definitely going to miss. I'll go. I'll go four. And he's like, no, nah, you'll go like seven. I'm like, seven. Anyway, gets down to it, and then I, 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 I go up there, and the only thing I was stressing about is I hadn't bought my tea. Oh yeah. So I um, had to borrow someone else's tea, and I was like, fucking like shit of it. It was one of those I wore. I used the like the telescopic one. Yeah. I like used to like it quite high, just get the levers through and. And I just had to kick off one of those little stubby ones. I was, like, oh, I was worried about that, just hit, hitting the grass, but just whacked it through. And then, as it turns out, Martin Williams, like the greatest Welsh flanker ever, missed his. I felt like it's horrible yeah. for him. But then Jordan Crane, our guy, got it. And yeah, it was cool. <laughs> Unbelievable scenes there. Eh? It was so, so hard case. It was the only time um, people sometimes ask you, like, playing in front of big crowds and that, what's it like? Do you hear it? And you're like, you never do. Like, it's always just a buzz. You hear the odd bit and. You hear cheering and maybe booing and stuff, but um, that was the only game I've ever heard like the crowd while I'm being like literally playing here in the crowd, and the Eng- all the English crowd was singing um, "Sweet Chariot" and all the Welsh were singing "Bread of Heaven," and it was just like a like just merging songs for the whole game. It was like unbelievable. Um, that was one of my favourite games, most memorable games. Mate, it looked it. It was one of those great ones. Eh? Yeah, mate, it was so good. We're playing um, Toulouse this week in the return game, and it's aggregate over two games. Oh, yeah. And uh, the, there's a kickoff thing in that if uh, if it gets to points and tries and all that. But I think it probably won't get to that. But boys are talking about it today. Can coaches step up? Nah. Oh, mate, I can't even <laughs> touch the toes, let alone kick a ball. <laughs> Mate, if it's a boat race, I'll step. <laughs> Another team I love hearing the stories about is um, the Barbarians. And I know you had a um, good time in the Barbarians, scoring a try, but then looked like you broke your neck. Yeah, yeah. We were getting, we, we went to Barbarians during the week and, and had a lot of beers. We had a pretty good side, but we are getting pumped at Ireland. And I scored a try and, and I didn't break my neck, but I sort of jarred my neck and I knew something was wrong. Like most rugby footy guys, you get up and you're like, oh, yeah, I'll walk it off. Or even if it's bad, you can still sort of, and I was like, nah, something's not quite right. And I just, I, as it turned out, I spent three days in Gloucester Hospital, you know, like not the screw on things, but a halo and watching TV through a mirror and oh, all alone. I had no family, no friends like around. It was really surreal. Um, Luckily, I'd already got my 10 grand cash um, in an envelope on day one. So I was like, mate, where's my cash? And they're like, yeah, you don't worry about your cash. And uh, I'd ruptured three discs in my neck. And um, so I'd spent a bit of time on the sidelines. But uh, oh, the Barbars was, was pretty pretty cool, pretty special. I've actually tried to, I've contacted them a few times to see if I'd get some guest coaching gigs with them. But they're like, yeah, 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 nah. <laughs> Well, they actually sent me last year. I don't know if you noticed they on the jerseys, the playing jerseys, in the number they have everyone like the form, former players. They sent me a jersey last year or the year before, which is yeah. just out of the blue. Emailed and said, "Hey, we want to send you a jersey." And pretty cool club to be part of. Yeah. The best thing about that was Tom, Tom Donnelly was meant to be 
with me. He was meant to fly over. And then he got called into the All Blacks. And they're like, oh, we need you to cover. And he's like, all oh, right, sweet. I'll come in and cover. And he did like two days covering, like whoever, I don't know, Chris Jack or something. Two days of covering. We went to like a week and two weeks in England, got 10 grand cash. And he didn't even get to bloody come over. And I remember I got back from the airport, drove straight to his house. And I just, I dropped them off. Like, I said, oh, mate, just off to the bank. Oh, yeah, what's that for? I've just got to take this money into the bank. <laughs> Eight grand cash. I spent a couple, but he was like, get the fuck out of my house. Get the fuck out. <laughs> mate, it's good. Oh, it's so good. And we spoke about your sort of retirement and coaching um, at the start, but what are what are the plans for you going forward? Uh, keep learning. Like, mate, coaching's hard. Um, there's so many awesome times, and I, I absolutely love it. And I think, for me, it's just keep learning. Um, I've just signed a new two-year deal here, so I'll be in Belfast for another two years. And really, really good group. Our head coach, Dan McFarlane, is like an outstanding head coach. I'm learning loads. I'd love to become a defence coach or a forwards coach of, you know, whether it's here or, or, or other opportunities. Um, I'd say England or, you know, the Europe's probably my, my thing. My wife's English, um, so I kind of got some guys here. My daughter's uh, got two years left at high school over here and she'll go to university over here. So I'm sort of, that's probably where I'm going to be for the time being. Um, but yeah, pretty loose sort of plans in terms of my coaching just keep learning and keep enjoying it um i've got some personal goals outside of footy that i want to achieve but they're for another day really how good is that love it well what a story what a career um so many good diesel stories in there um, i'm sure the Woodland listeners will be loving that but as always we've gone to our instagram for some questions and mate you have a lot of friends who follow water lad obviously um, plenty of good questions have come in for you here. Our first question, what happened to Tom Donnelly when he tried to charge the back? Oh, the old back seat. Uh, yeah, he, he got a split lip. Uh, when I first started for the Hollanders, it was like the back seat of Hoft and Oliver and Muse, you know, some big dog old school, and I learned the, the fast way of – you know, the, the back seat was kind of uh, the leadership group, I suppose, and in a symbolic, symbolic way was was that. And getting to the back seat was always a big thing. And I remember it was Otago, end of season trip, I think. And I think oh, the boys used to just gee everyone up and make a charge for it. And I didn't even know if I was on the back seat or I was sort of one one in front or not, but I can't remember. And he just came in and I just put one down the, put one down the middle and slotted him. Like, I actually felt horrendously bad because it just ruined his day. He had this massive split lip and Ruiner's day. Oh, yeah. You guys were good friends though, eh? Oh, best mates. Still best mates. <laughs> yeah. You obviously got them good though. Oh, I, I don't know. <clears throat> it was one of those, I didn't see any faces, just saw a, just saw a bloke. And just sent <laughs> okay, good stuff. Okay, next one. Um, where does he get the nickname Soupy from? Oh, um, I, I just used to enjoy the social side of footy and thing I said earlier is like play work hard, play hard, drink hard, you know, and Hong Kong Soupy was a, uh, a, a like a real shitty cartoon superhero when I was a kid growing up and uh, the boys just used to call me Hong Kong Soupy and uh, just sort of went into there. Oh, I don't know, yeah, I think it was just like a product of like whoever was at the front of the charge most of the time or whoever was the leader and 
and I guess because I was captain for for a lot of those years that um, I was always for always for it. Boys letting off a bit of steam and, and enjoying each other's company. Mm, sounds like good times. Okay, the next one. Tell us about the Stewart Island off-season trips. <laughs> oh, so Stewart Island's obviously down the bottom, and we used to go down there um, after each se- season and book a hut on a do- on dock land. And um, it was probably early in my hunting career. Like Carl Heyman got me into hunting, and yeah, we'd go down there and just drink beers for a few days. The one of the best ones was we. I think we had fifteen cans of beer a day each was our allocation, and we had to get through it. And it was me and Glenn Horton, Carl Heyman, Tom Donnelly, Charlie Hall was always there. Tim Boys, Whopper. Good crew, and uh, one of the best ones we used to, because the allocation, we called it, was so high, we brought in the seamer rule. If you got a can that had the seam down the mouth, you had to, you had to skull that. And um, Each day, two blokes had to um, were designated non-hunters, so uh, you had to try and get through double your allocation just to, get, just to get ahead of it, and everyone else would go and hunting and fishing and stuff. And me and Charlie Hall were on one day, and... Uh, we got um, we got pretty pretty hammered, and the boys went out for a hunt, came back, and then they decided let's go for a dive. So for some reason, me and Charlie jumped on the boat on Zarg Carl Hammond's um, on Zarg's Stabycraft, and we jumped out there, and they went for a dive, and we went. We were too pissed. We we're drinking beers, and we decided they, they were down there for a while, and we decided look, we we're going to go f- do a bit of fishing, and so we chucked the keys in uh, in ignition, and and went for it, and we we're burning around and. The boys reckon they could all they could hear was like, like just they were underwater. Obviously, you just see this like outboard just zooming past, and we're apparently doing laps. And um, I was they were too scared to come up, and then eventually we we calmed down a bit. But that was um, that was one story. But we, I don't think we were there like four years or something. And I think we only person who shot a deer was Carl, and that was off off the boat. Um, we saw a few, but um, it was real social. Another time, me and Whopper. Jamie McIntosh fell asleep. We we got up real early. We fell asleep on the beach, and we missed completely all the the deer hunting. We woke up and there was this massive big seal or sea lion on the beach of a hundred meters down the thing. We're like contemplating like what would we have to do to consider shooting it? And we're like so we went into survival mode. We went like bear grills and we decided that we'd walk to this other hut and spend a whole day like pretending to be survivor men. And in the end, we didn't see any deer. We didn't do any surviving, but we just. Um, we think the boys were meant to pick us up on the boat and they forgot about us, but that was always a good um, end of year blowout. And I think um, we've got plans to get back down there at some stage. Mate, that is a hell of a time. Uh, and what a crew you had. Jesus, some lads in there. Oh, man, I could go for weeks on the on Stewart Island. The, one of the better ones I realized was we ran out, of, ran out of beer one day. And so we uh, radioed into the a guy that had brought us over. We radioed in, um, and he was in Oban, which was about two hours around from the hut we were at and we um we paid the guy a thousand dollars to take us to Oban um to pick up more beers and we got to the to the jetty in Oban we'd all ordered through the the um pub there and they dropped off like boxes and boxes of beers we didn't even get on shore we just scooped them off off the wharf chucked them back in and we we it was a five and a half hour round trip just to get another like dozen beers each for, for a day uh, it was awesome yeah, awesome oh the yarns the yarns mate Bucket list material going to Stewart Island with Craig Newby, mate. Sounds like one of the greats. Anyway, next question is, what's your best Scott Hamilton yarn? Oh, Scotty Hamilton. What a legend. He's actually just retired um, eventually. He's been 
director of rugby and still playing for Hinkley, which are in National 1 or 2 over in England. Uh, he's just retired, so w- what a bloke, um, what a man, and w- what a friend, you know, real good. We came to the Le- to Leicester three weeks apart. He stayed with me for a bit until he got his house sorted, so we've been mates for as long as we've I've been over in, over in the UK. Uh, some good ones. Uh, I'll go real quick. Kasabian were in town in Leicester, local local band, pretty good, and he was like, right, we're all going, and he put on Twitter, uh, hey, guys, like the old thumbs up, hey, guys, everyone, I'm coming to Kasabian, catch you there later on, and uh, a, a 12-year-old lad filmed him at Kasabian at 11 in the morning, so he'd only been there an hour. He was on a, on a St. John's gurney, passed out, vomit, just sick as a dog, and the 12-year-old had gone like a selfie, when selfies went a thing, was like, Hey mate, found you. <laughs> and the crazy story was he had to pay the kid off from putting it, releasing it, and that. But that was a good one. Uh, what else has Scotty done? Oh, we went to the races one time, and um, we had a few Ascot Royal Ascot. It was awesome, like quality day, twenty five degrees. Everyone in shorts, t shirt, and that. And Scotty's there and getting a bit loose. And um, we went to leave, and we're like, no one, nowhere. Where's Scotty? Like, there's a big group of us. Where's Scotty? Look, we can't leave a man down. There's thousands of people there, and we. No, no phone signal, not Anshin's phone. And there's a band in the background. Everyone's having a great time. And then all of a sudden, we like, look over, and he's up on stage with the band singing John Farnham, You're the Voice. Just going <laughs> mental. Mate, and then they, we're like trying to, oh, like, I don't know, wave them over. We're trying to, hoping that they would crowd surf him back, but they didn't. Eventually, we found him. And then um, our attack coach, Dan Soper, is a Kiwi guy. He came to the 2009 Heineken Cup final that we played against Leinster in Murrayfield. He came on it as a stag do, and he went up there Thursday, Friday. He didn't know Scott, didn't know me. Thursday, Friday, stag do. Saturday was the match, 3 o'clock. He met, bumped into us um, Saturday night, 8 p.m., and we'd obviously lost the final to Leinster. And he said he'd been on the piss for three days, and Scott Hamilton was just still the drunkest bloke in Edinburgh. <laughs> One of us would have been like three hours ago and Scott's the drunk guy in Edinburgh. <laughs> oh, mate, I need to get him on. What a lad. He sounds like an absolute lad. Oh, I love that one. Okay, next question is, what's the best stadium in the Premiership? Uh, Welford Road. Right, hands down. Just real close, passionate, real loud when you're winning, when you're losing, which wasn't that often when I was playing, but like just – Mega, mega place. Um, Franklin's Gardens, Northampton was really good. Uh, down in Gloucester was really good. Like the shed, you know, they used to they used to get get stuck up to Leicester. That was a real, real cool one. Um, yeah, mate, some real good ones. They eh? like Sandy Park down in Exeter. Once they came in, mate, they they're a fortress down there. Um, one of the we used to I used to before um, before games I was a bit quite casual and guys were out like banging walls or out there kicking or passing I was always just passing and kicking and I used to um, me and Tom Vandell was a winger we used to just kick the ball and do like back passes and that and Richard Cocker used to lose it he was like why are these guys mucking around and we're like well, it's just what we're trying to relax and I remember Tom Vandell used to send balls into the crowd and we'd pick out like especially at away games we'd pick out like a like home fans. And would just try and send a ball into them. And he he one day just this this lady was carrying like four beers walking through the thing and he just like I'm gonna and he targets this lady trying to knock her beers off, hit her straight in the face, she went down, bears everywhere, and we're like, Oh shit, we just turned around and uh, <laughs> Oh, good times. Oh, love it. Oh, those days. Were you like that in the all black environment? Nah, no, nah, no way. I was nowhere near 
I didn't enjoy those small things in the All Blacks. You know, I just it was business. It was um, representing everyone. You know, like your country and yourself and your family. And that. So I didn't really, didn't really, and I never really felt comfortable in the playing environment to to actually express myself as much as I would if I was in the Highlanders or the Otago or, or just my you know local club or whatever. So it was just different. But I think it it, it deserved that respect. You know, I didn't think. Um, it was the, the place to do a lot of those things. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, next one. Uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of these, but what is your favourite all-time quarter? Oh, I, I can't remember any specific one. I remember the one time in New South Wales we played um, and we were – Filippo Levy had a fight with Justin Harrison and got sent off. And we were backs against the wall. We were battlers, mate. Like we were just just good blokes who ripped in, and we were down by I don't know a few points. And I'm sure it was Matt Saunders or Glenn Horton or both of them scored like a couple of tries each, just out of nowhere. And we just like fought our way back. And Matt Burke had a kick to win it from 40 out, last play of the game, and it hit the post. And Neil Brew caught it and kicked it off, and we went mental. And and we had a um, we went into Darling. Is it Darling Harbour? <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and we had a coffee in there at the seafood restaurant. And we just took over this whole place and just had this awesome, like, it wasn't really a 40 quarter. It was just like a few speed rounds and some fines. And that was always a memorable one. And then, uh, yeah, that was that was pretty cool. I remember Roy Kinney, Kinney Lauer, when he first came in and he just, I, I remember something stuck out in your mind and he was like, um, oh, this is how we do a jug and welly. And he just took, Two hours to do his jug. We just mate sit in the corner, <laughs> get out of our sight. You're ruining time. So many good ones. Oh shit! There could be a book about your court sessions. Okay, next one. Why did you always wear an Adidas top, big baggy denim jeans, and Adidas shoes when you went to town? Oh <laughs> well, mate, baggy jeans had baggy pockets, so keep all the cash. Probably a can of, can of spates in each pocket. And- I don't know, that was probably just growing up in Rotorua. I can't even remember wearing baggy jeans and that to town, but and I was sponsored by Adidas. You know, they were um they were pretty good to me, so I guess mate, I was tight though in those days, eh? Tight, so free fit. You don't get nothing for free. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, next one. Does he still wear G strings? <laughs> I've never ever worn a G string. Um Eric Rush made up the story that I used to wear G-strings and in his after-match speeches and, and presentation, you always say, oh, he'd introduce guys and he'd be like, oh, this is Carl Tanana, his nickname's the ABC or whatever, and this is Noobs and his nickname's the G-Man because he can wear a G-string backwards. Brutal way, like, it was such a good, like, no comeback. But no, I never wore G-strings. So that's just fully <laughs> made up. You just had to run with it. Yeah. is one of the, the best ones. I can't remember who it was, but he used to say... Um, he used to use little like nicknames like that. One was the Sledge, oh, the Sled. He's like, oh yeah, and this is Craig Newby, the Sled. Is, you know, and they're like, oh, what's he called the Sled? And they're like, he's called the Sled because when he was at school, he was always getting pulled by dogs. <laughs> Shit, he was good. Oh, that's hard case. Okay, <laughs> next one. Oh, there'll be a few of these too, I'd imagine. Best Tony Woodcock yarn. Oh, Woody. Uh, what a what a. Me and him are really good mates. Well, best mates. We've been great mates for the minute I became a North Harbour guy. Um, one of the best ones uh, the best one was we came back from Northland and he, he decided that we we're going to drink a 24 pack on the way back from Northland to North Harbour which is you know like some, some doing two hours or whatever two and a half hours and, and so we're chipping away and he was a he's a steady drinker <clears throat> and uh, we're chipping away and he 
I just remember him standing up to tell a yarn and the bus must have, like, there must have been a, some sheep on the road or something and it just slammed its brakes on at 100k an hour and he just went from back to the front, arse over tit, all the way down and he just up in his hat. He had, like, a hat on and it just, he gets up and his hat to the side and he's like, fuck. There was days, he's like, didn't know what had happened and he still had his beer, it was all frothy and everything, he just, like, finished his beer, walked back as if nothing had happened. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed that one. Okay, the next one. What was Lewis Moody like to play with? Few English fans. Yeah, Lewis Moody. Oh, um, just relentless. Like he was such a leader in in his intensity and effort, and it was infectious. So we we played a bit of six and seven, and then he um, made like charge downs and hitting rucks and um, any loose balls, scraps on the ground, just those kind of things. He was the world leader in anything. Um, he's also the world leader at getting cut, like he would be cut every game. We played a game of touch in a warm-up one day, and he dove, like he was fully on diving around, and he dove for a ball, and he hit Alessandro Tuolangi, and he broke his leg in a, a warm-up game of touch on like a Tuesday. Mad Dog was his nickname. Real good. Uh, I've got a lot of time for Moodles. Yeah. Okay, next one. Who was the best player you ever played with? This will be tough, because you obviously played with some legends. Uh, oh, Jonah, like hands down. Jonah was the best player I ever played with. Just, just a freak, you know, um, particularly Simmons. In 15s, it probably would have been Tony Brown. Uh, just the most influential on a team in a, in a game. Like you see his, his leadership as a coach now, he's just making good blokes into great players and, and good teams into great teams. And, and um, he did that as a player, so... Brownie stands out. Jeff Olsen was ridiculous when I was a kid, you know, like watching him doing stuff and then getting to play with him. So probably those three stand out. Oh, yeah, good shouts, all of them. Okay, last question. Best piece of advice you have for a Waterlad listener? Best piece of advice? Oh, I think um, if you want something, go and get it. Go and find a way to get it. Write some ideas down and make it happen. Don't sit around and and just let the world go by or other people have stuff, you know, like the, the grass is not always greener on the other side. So just if you want something, go and rip into it and, and make it happen and and be patient. I think a lot of people these days and particularly younger generation, like my teenage daughter and her friends and that, but they're a bit impatient. Just go and work and work and work. And if it doesn't, if one opportunity doesn't work out, go and find another one. But that would probably be a bit of advice, really. Just go and you want it, go and get it. Oh, mate, I love that. And that is why you are a coach. Jeez, these Ulster lads are lucky having information and advice like that on tap whenever they want it. <laughs> mate, what a coach. Oh, you never know, mate. They, uh, they're, pretty, they're pretty good here. Eh? I'm really lucky they're self-driven and, and I just, you know, like I just turn up basically. I'm just a guy that turns up when they when they ask and and that's all I, I think my role here is, you know, a big, big part of that is just giving them time. Nice, love it. Anyway, mate, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, um, sharing some of these yarns. One of the best podcasts to date. Um, So many good stories, so many good yarns, and I'm sure the listeners will have enjoyed that one. All the best with the rest of your coaching career, and I'll be following it very closely. Thanks, mate. Awesome. Love love your work. Keep the work up, mate. Some good blokes coming on here. I'll get you Scott Hamilton's number. Yeah, cheers, mate. That'd be good (laughs) stuff. It is.